Well, Acts chapter 19, we started uh, the chapter the last time we were together. If you look at verse 1, you'll notice it says, Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. And as I mentioned at the time, we are in the midst now of Paul's third missionary journey. The second missionary journey that ended at the end of chapter 18 Luke, who's the author of the book of Luke, took sort of this little side detour, followed another couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and some of the work that they were doing. And then as chapter 19 begins, uh, he picks back up again and is following the apostle Paul. And in particular, as we see, it says he came to Ephesus. Now, Paul had visited Ephesus before, just for a brief period of time, an opportunity on his way somewhere else he stopped by sort of that port city. He went in. He began to minister to folks. He had a very good reception. Uh, Please stay longer. Teach us more. We have so much to learn. Uh, I'd love to. I can't, uh, was Paul's response. I really have some obligations and requirements that I need to get to. But if I can, and if the Lord wills, I will be back. We saw that uh, in uh, chapter 18, verse 21. He says, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from there to, um, he set sail from Ephesus. Now, Paul will return there, as I said. And so it was his will. He wasn't just sort of, you know, saying what they wanted to hear. I promise I'll come back and you have no intention or the salesperson. I'm just going to go and I'll be back. And you have no intention of going back. That wasn't what Paul was doing here. He really wanted to come back to Ephesus, but he also wanted to be in the center of God's will. We don't always know exactly what God would have for us, and so we have to seek him on those things, and we can't just determine what we want to do and tell God to bless it. And so Paul, seeking the Lord, the opportunity presents himself. He goes back to Ephesus, and we spent our time together, a, a shortened period of time last week, because we celebrated communion. We spent some time talking about that first group that he came to, those disciples of John, people that knew about repentance, people that knew that the Messiah was coming, people that knew that it was their duty and their responsibility to get ready for the coming of the Messiah, but people that didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, people who hadn't heard that part of the message. And so Paul clarified that to them. He explained that to them. You may recall he he began to talk to them about what he sensed the absence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, which led him to uh, conclude these are not yet believers. So they know about repentance, they know about God, they know that they're not in a right place with God and that they really should be in a right place with God, but they knew nothing of the power of how to get in the right place with God, which comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in and upon their lives. And so Paul began to explain that to them, and we saw in verse 4, and Paul, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. And it says, and on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, there was more that they heard about Jesus, but they became believers in Jesus Christ. And because they were, they were baptized, a public demonstration, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's about where we left off. So let's pick up verse 6. It says, now when Paul had laid hands on them, that means he prayed for them, uh, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Tongues, this prayer language designed primarily for a person's communicating to God. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. The scripture teaches that some people do. 
these individuals here did. And we know that because the text said it. They began to prophesy, foretell God's word, not just predict things, but proclaim the word of God or what God himself would say. Not the first time. We see this in the book of Acts. If you've been with us during our study, you know that every now and again, this sort of a situation where the Holy Spirit comes upon a person or a group of people occurs, and you have accompanying it these signs and wonders, things like tongues or things like prophecy. So you remember back in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost, and you have 120 that are praying, and the Holy Spirit moved and came upon them, and they began to pray and speak in these other languages. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. In Acts chapter 8, we saw the Holy Spirit come in this way upon the new believers there in Samaria. As some of the disciples went to that region of Samaria, they began to proclaim the gospel to those individuals that have had a little bit of a Jewish background. They believed, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it was marked by the various signs that uh, are described in chapter 8, verse 17. In Acts chapter 10, we saw how a, a Gentile, a man by the name of Cornelius, you remember he was the centurion, he began to be stirred about the things of the Jewish God, who was around all the time because he was around the Jewish people all the time, solicited that Paul or that Peter would come. Peter came, began to explain to him the gospel, and Cornelius believed. His whole household believed. And in that instance, again, it was accompanied by the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. That's Acts chapter 10. And now, for the fourth time in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon a people. We learn 12 of them, 12 of these former disciples of John, now disciples of Jesus, believing, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power and accompanied by various signs. Specifically, we're told they were speaking in tongues and they were prophesying. Now, part of the reason I pointed out, it happens four different times in the book of Acts. We're in the 20th we're getting up to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. And there's been lots of people that have believed as a result of the preaching that was taking place by people like Paul and people like Apollos and Silas and Timothy and Peter and all of the others that were going forth. And so the experience happens on more than one occasion, but it does not happen on every single occasion, occasion that we are um, looking at here in the book of Acts. And so it's important for us to understand, we might look at this and say, well, how come that didn't happen to me? Or how come that doesn't happen to the people that I'm communicating with? And make sure you understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't manifest his presence upon every new convert in the book of Acts, or in our day, in this particular way. But it's also important for us to understand, he does in some instances. Are you with me? Nobody? All right, I'll, go, I'll start all over. All right, I'll build up to it again if we need to. So here in Ephesus, we have one more of those instances where the Holy Spirit manifests himself in this particular way. Again, notice I'm saying himself and not itself. The Holy Spirit is a person. Notice this. Great experience, right? pretty powerful. We might want all well, this. Oh, I wish that happens today. Maybe we're thinking some of us are thinking that. But notice this. Paul doesn't change even with this. Um, this incredible experiential thing that is going on. Paul doesn't change fundamentally the way that he does ministry. 
and his goals and his objectives. So look at verse uh, 8 there. It says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, does, does that verse pretty much sound familiar? Yeah, that's pretty much what he did in every single city that he went to. And so we have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was incredible. No doubt people went home, you should have been there. It was amazing. And yet Paul doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to now go to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit style ministry instead of what he does do, a teaching of the word, boldly uh, proclaiming it, reasoning with the people, explaining to the people. And that's a ministry that takes time. And over three months, he's doing that there in this city of Ephesus. So God has done this unique and wonderful work, but Paul's mode of ministry uh, continues as it had always been. Go to the people, explain to them the scripture, answer their questions, help them in the journey, in the process of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And as you continue to look at verse 8, it appears that the people were responsive. Notice they keep coming back for three months. And so for three months, they're like, yeah, you know, we like what you have to say. This is good. Um, Unfortunately, we always have a verse 9 in our lives. Things are great. And then verse 9 comes along, and it says, Until some became stubborn, stubborn, and they continued in their unbelief. I'll read it exactly. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what the Christians were known as, before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so three months, things are going great. Uh, For whatever reason, people begin, I don't like this guy, Paul. Yeah, me either. Yeah, more people like him than they like us, and we're supposed to be the leaders. And they do what they do. They become stubborn. They become hard-hearted. They begin to stir up some trouble. And at some point in time, Paul realizes that the message of the gospel And its ability to change a person's life and provoke that change in a person's life is now experiencing the opposition that it always does. It just takes a matter of time, but eventually somebody's going to rise up, somebody's going to say something, somebody, somebody is going to push back, and Paul's beginning to experience that. And soon, every time he goes to this synagogue there and he begins to talk to people or tries to talk to people, the opposition is such that Paul doesn't even really get to talk anymore about the things of the Lord. It's about arguing and being argued and yelled at and and all this kind of stuff. And Paul comes to the conclusion, you know what, the best bet is for me to just take off out of here, go to another location where I'm not going to have these constant confrontations. Does that make sense? Uh, Was that clear? I feel like I was a little... I'm confusing in in saying that. Well, So the place that he's going to go, as it says here in verse uh, 9, is the hall of Tyrannus. So notice this. Paul doesn't stop teaching because of the opposition. Paul doesn't say, well, what's the use then? I can't believe I have to fight with you people about it. You want to go to hell, go to hell. I don't care anymore. That's not his conclusion. He knows he needs to keep teaching the people. And he knows, you know what, I'm not going to continue to cast my pearls before swine, as the expression goes. I'm going to talk to those that want to talk. And it's not happening in the synagogue, so we're going to rent a room somewhere else, and we're going to do that. And so he does that. He moves to a different locale. He moves to the, the hall of Tyrannus. Some of your versions might say the school of this particular fellow. He was, we know a little bit about him from history. He was a Gentile teacher. He was kind of a philosopher uh, in that day. 
He had a little small school where he helped people learn things like logic and reasoning and debate and those sorts of things. And Paul rented a room from him in his school. More likely, it was just a one-room building, and he rented that building um, for a period of time. I, I really like this. It feels very Calvary Chapel-esque if you've been around. Like, you know, let's find a room somewhere that's comfortable, nice chairs or whatever. Air conditioning would be great if they have that. If it worked every week, that would be wonderful too. Sometimes that doesn't happen here. But nonetheless, uh, they rent out a, a room. I don't think they put a Calvary Chapel sign up. And there the people came. Maybe they sang a couple of songs. They prayed with one another. They talked about the word of God. Paul explained the word of God to them. And they went back. Uh, doing what they were doing. And it says, notice verse 10, and this continued for two years. Now you remember when Paul was in Corinth, the city kind of before this one, uh, he was there for 18 months. Here now he's in Ephesus for two years and probably even longer than that because he was three months there in the synagogue as well. So this is the longest that Paul has stayed in a particular city. It says he continued there for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Every day, Paul would teach there, or probably six days a week. He would teach there in this school. Now, this is not in our Bibles. Some of your manuscripts, if you have like little notes at the bottom or the side or something, it may have a little note in the margins that explains sort of the custom of the Ephesians. The, customs of, the custom of the Ephesians, the people of Ephesus, uh, was to take sort of a midday siesta of sorts. I kind of like that. As many days here, I, I go and I pray on the couch uh, in the middle of the day. Uh, and it's not uncommon uh, for some, will usually bump something to wake me um, here, and I drift off. But they would take these midday siestas. It was very hot there during the middle of the day. And so what they would do, we know this historically, what they would do is they would pretty much work from about 7 a.m. to about 11 a.m. Then they would have the middle of the day off, and then they would go back to work around 4 p.m. and work till 7, 8 o'clock at night. And that was kind of how they did their thing. So the middle of the day, this school, Tyrannus, would take off, and Paul would say, well, can I rent this space during the middle of the day, or can I use this space during the middle of the day, um, was the way they operated. William Barclay, a commentator, he said this, more people were sound asleep in Ephesus at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m., right? So middle of the day, you go home, you go to sleep. But Paul didn't go home during the middle of the day to go to sleep or to grab some lunch and things like that. Rather, Paul went down to this hall where he would teach the people, and the people came. They didn't go home to go to sleep. They came so that they could learn. This would be the opportunity for them to gather, the disciples there of Ephesus, and so rather than using that block of four or five hours uh, for their own personal reasons, whatever they want to do, they used it to be taught by the Apostle Paul for four or five hours. Imagine how many hours of teaching Paul was able to complete. He met with them daily, it tells us. He, let's just say he did three of those four hours, and he does this for two years. I did a little math. That's about 1,800 hours of teaching, sitting under the Apostle Paul. Isn't that something? The opportunity that they had to do that. And we know that the church of Ephesus was a strong, vibrant, missionary type of church uh, in the first century. And no wonder. 
because the people were taught the word of God and they sat under the word of God and they were eager to receive the word of God and Paul was eager to bring the word of God and God uses that and so may I say to you as I say to myself if you want to grow in your faith sit under the word of God how important it is to be taught the word of God to sit with it yourself in a personal Bible study to be listening to it taught perhaps as you're going from one place to another if you want to grow in your faith sit with the word of God as much as you can I remember a lady we had at our church uh, who came to the Lord in her 40s. I remember I was in my 20s, and I was like, man, she's old, 40s um, there, no offense. But she had come to the Lord a little bit later in her life, and she went to every study that our church offered, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, women's group, a small group that was meeting, and she said, I got a lot of catching up to do with the study of the Word of God, as much that I need to learn. And God uses that. God used it here in these folks' lives. Notice, I want you to notice one other thing about the Apostle Paul. Flip over probably a page in your Bible. Look at verse 34 of chapter 20. It says there, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Now we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. But basically what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I ministered to you, I didn't take from you. I didn't go into your town and say, look, I'm going to be your minister, I'm going to be your apostle, and this is the, the paycheck I expect from you so that all I do is devote myself to ministry. Sometimes that Paul received uh, a financial situation like that. But here in Ephesus, Paul went and got a job. You remember in Corinth, he met Priscilla and Aquila, and his job class, he was a tent maker, and that's probably what he is doing here. And so when he refers to... Uh, he says, you yourselves know that these hands minister. He's talking about, I had a daily job. All right, now let's go back to what we just learned a moment ago. That means that Paul got up every day, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, ate his breakfast, had a little devotional time or something like that, made it to his place of work by 7 a.m., worked hard until just about lunchtime for them or whatever, 11 a.m., and instead of going home to rest, went down to the hall taught the people, which is tiring, by the way, and taught the people for three or so hours. And then he went back to work and did his job for the next four or five hours, and then he went and crashed on his pillow as soon as he got home. Because Paul was a servant. That's what I'm trying to draw our attention to here. Paul's not the, this, the grand apostle who can mandate, you're going to do these things for me, and my life should be easy um, so that I can serve you people. Uh, no, Paul is a servant. And whatever was necessary, whatever was needed to help these people in this congregation here, Paul was going to do those things. And so he uses his free time daily to teach the word of God to the people of Ephesus. And again, it's the reason why God blessed the ministry of his word. I think it's one of the reasons why he blessed the ministry of his word so much there in that church of Ephesus. Well, the passage goes on. We'll pick up in verse 10 in just a second. It says, now this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. Now, when we think of Asia, we think of China, we think of India, um, Japan, you know, countries like that in, on the continent of Asia today. This is actually referring to what historians today refer to as Asia Minor. It was a, one of the smaller regions, not too far away 
um, from today, what is Turkey or far away from the, the area that is today, uh, right near the area of Greece. Uh, and so it states here that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Paul's ministry was in the largest of the cities of that region, the city of Ephesus. 330,000 or so people, they estimate, lived there at that time. And Luke writes here that the word of the Lord went beyond Ephesus, the city that Paul was in, to all of the residents of Asia. I think that's the words he actually uses, all of the residents of Asia. So now, if Paul was teaching daily at the hall of Tyrannus, which was in Ephesus, Paul wasn't the one going outside of Ephesus to reach all of the people of Asia. Are you with me? Do you see that there? Which means the people that Paul was teaching were going outside of the city of Ephesus to reach all of the people that are there in Asia. How appropriate. Because the Apostle Paul would write in another place these words. In his book, To These Ephesians, he said, Now he, which is God, context, you can see that. Now God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul is not going all around Asia. He had a job that he had to be at every day at 7 a.m., and then a ministry he had to be at every day at 11 a.m. Paul's not going all around Asia. The people that Paul was ministering to were going all around Asia. What Paul was doing was equipping the saints so that they could go, and they would. 100, 200, 500, we don't know how many were there, but they would. And so rather than Paul just going to one place because he's one man, 100 people would go to 100 places equipped by the apostle. And I bring it up here because that too is one of the philosophies of our ministry. So two key philosophies of ministry here at Calvary. A room with chairs and equipping of the saints to go and do the work of the ministry. Amen? We see that example. Let's go on to verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, if you don't study your Bible a lot, you're thinking, wow, the Bible's kind of peculiar. Well, notice a couple things here. This is unusual. This taking an apron, taking a, what was the other thing, a handkerchief. This is unusual that those things would be taken somewhere and people would be healed. Notice how Luke describes it in verse 11. Again, Luke's the author of the book of Acts. He says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Some of your versions might use the word special miracles, or they might use the word unusual miracles. Now, all miracles are outside of the ordinary, and so we call them extraordinary, correct? Okay, this was an extra, extraordinary miracle that was taking place where people were taking articles of the Apostle Paul's work clothing. So not like, like uh, who's that lady that she went to jail for cooking? Martha, Martha Stewart, is that her name? All right, so not like Martha Stewart, 
uh, apron. We're not talking about him making brownies or something. He had probably this leather apron kind of thing. He was manly man, you know, that he was working with. His handkerchief is probably not to blow his nose kind of handkerchief, but oh, he's sweating that kind of a handkerchief and shoved into his back pocket. And these things, people were taking these articles of the Apostle Paul and they were bringing them to people that were sick or demon oppressed or possessed, whatever, whatever the evil spirits that uh, were upon them. And the people were being healed. Now, maybe you're thinking, wow, I've never seen that happen. That's right. And you're probably never going to see that happen. Not because I don't think that the miraculous occurs today. I do believe that God can intervene in a miraculous way today. But I think the reason why you're probably never going to see this is the way Luke describes it. It was an extraordinary miracle that was taking place at that particular point. Why? more than likely to authenticate the message of the Apostle Paul. And people were being drawn to the Apostle Paul, more importantly, to the message and the person that Paul was pointing them to. God had done this sort of thing before, but it's not something that happens all the time. You remember in the book of Matthew chapter 14, that that wonderful gospel story of the desperate woman that had the issuance of blood for, I believe it says, 12 years. And Jesus is crowded around, everybody pressing in on him. He had just been teaching and the like. And she says, if I can just kind of squeeze through this crowd and grab a hold of the hem of his garment, I know that he can heal me. I don't need to talk to him. I don't need to ask him. He doesn't need to say some fancy prayer. If I could just grab the hem of that garment, I know that he could heal me. And so she makes her way through that crowd, bumping and jostled and all that, gets to it, grabs a hold of it, knows that she is healed, and sneaks away, and Jesus stops everything. And he said, who touched me? Now, 50,000 people just touched him. They all bumped into him. He said, and they say that. His, his disciples say that. Lord, what's the matter with you? Everybody touched you. He said, no, 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 but somebody touched me. Somebody reached out for healing, and they were healed. And she comes back, and she says, I'm so sorry it was me. He said, don't be sorry. But that was one of those examples. Now, uh, in Acts uh, five-ish, I think it is. Peter, it says that he's kind of walking by and the people are lining the streets that even a shadow might fall upon them and they might be healed. Now in that instance, it doesn't say whether the shadow, they were healed by the shadow passing on them or if the people just lined the streets hoping they would be healed. But either way, we have a similar type of an example as we have here where people are taking these articles of clothing, not because the articles of clothing, not because the shadow, not because the hem of Jesus' garment has the ability to heal, but as sort of this place where they can place their faith for healing. And that's what is going on in this instance here. These people are uh, coming to these articles of clothing of the Apostle Paul. It becomes sort of their point of contact for their faith And God is honoring it anyway, even though probably theologically it's wrong. But he's honoring it anyway, and these people are being healed. They were extraordinary miracles that God was using to uh, authenticate the message that the apostle was sharing. Look at verse 11. It says there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Not Paul, but God. Not Paul, but God. You see on TV, people will be on TV, and you know if you call in for my, my prayer handkerchief or whatever, with a gift, of course, of $500, all your problems will be healed because I'm going to pray especially over this handkerchief, 
and we will get it right into the mail to you, and it'll arrive at your house, and you hold on to that, and you ask God to heal you, and you'll be healed. Come on. Charlatans. Charlatans. The Apostle Paul was not a charlatan, okay? Uh, he's not the one doing this. God was doing it. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand, and Paul was simply the vessel. Now we go on, picking up in verse 13. It says, and I'm going to read to the end of the cha- uh, our section today. It says, now then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus uh, whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on these seven men, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, I guess so. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, it was lifted up, it was magnified. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their sinful practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May I say, this is an unusual passage of scripture too. If you're not a normal Bible study uh, attender, these are unusual passages uh, that are here before us. So uh, all of the Bible isn't like this necessarily. But anyway, we have a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists that are here. Now, I'm sure a lot of us saw the movie when we were little of Damien's head spinning around in circles or whatever and thinking, that's just like a movie thing. Now, these are real things that, I don't know about the head spinning around in circles, but demon, demon possession, oppression, all those kinds of things, they are real. We see examples of them in Scripture. They're talked about. We have this instance. Now, we have these itinerant Jewish exorcists, Jewish people, I don't know if they're all men, but Jewish people that would travel around, they would go into a particular community, they would explain who they are, what they did, people would bring to them people that they believed to be possessed, and these Jewish itinerant exorcists would do what they do, hoping to deliver those people of the evil spirits that are in them, upon them, whatever it might look like. We, we saw some examples of this in our previous studies of the Gospels, um, where I explained uh, about these Jewish itinerant um, exorcists. Now, they charged a fee for their services, um, so that should always kind of like, would you be doing this if you didn't get paid for this? But at the same time, it costs money to travel around and things like that. And so maybe there were some that were sincere. We want to help people. Uh, and if you could help kind of meet the cost for us doing that. And I imagine there were others that were fakes and just trying to make a living through this particular business. But in some of the examples that I shared earlier with you, you remember one method was if they could find out the name of the demon, then they can call out the name of the demon and tell the demon where he has to go, it has to go, and the demon had to listen. You remember that example there? So what is your name? Well, we are legion because we are many. Remember that account that we saw in the gospel? And then at that point I pointed out, how likely is the demon to tell the truth 
you know, like, oh, my name's Bill. You know, all right, Bill, you got to leave. Oh, man, I shouldn't have told you my name was Bill. You know, so, like, okay, so that was one. We also saw examples, or I explained, gave you some examples where they would take, like, uh, leaves and tree roots and things like that, and they would mix them up in water, and then they would, like, pour the water over the person, and the demons had to leave and all that. Well, that's what these itinerant Jewish exorcists would do. Here, in our account, in Acts chapter 19, we see sort of the newest method that they're employing, which is to uh, invoke the name of Jesus and the Apostle Paul who clearly God is using, has some power associated with him. And so these Jewish exorcists, they come in and they're going to say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims come out of the person. And so again, we see an example in the book of Acts of where Satan was unable to hinder the work that God was doing, in this case through the apostle Paul. And so what does Satan try to do? He tries to join the work that God is doing. You remember that little girl, uh, the Philip, uh, not Filipino, um, Philippian little girl that was there and how she said, these men are of God. And she followed them around and Paul's like, shut up. <laughs> All right, enough. You've done this for three days. Um, Acts 16, if you want to go back and you want to look at it, where Satan wants to join the work. And Paul's like, no, Satan's not joining the work, uh, particularly in that instance here. And so here we have, again, this example. These Jews weren't Christian believers, uh, yet they were using the name of Jesus. They were using the name of the apostle as if it was sort of a magic charm or, or something like that. And though they may have done it, great motivations. We're just trying to help people. We found this works, and so we want to use it. They may have had perfectly good intentions. There's nothing in the text that indicates they were trying to like take advantage of people or just get money or anything like that. And so this is their new method. Use Jesus as a magical charm uh, to deliver people of the demonic. One group in particular are the seven sons of Siva. And it tells us that Siva was a high priest, that he was a Jewish um, fella. He was living in that particular region. He wasn't the high priest. That fellow would have lived down uh, in Jerusalem. But he was a chief priest, to use a term that Jesus used in the Gospels. And so his sons, they want to get involved in ministry. Let's assume their intentions are good. They want to help people, and they found a way that they can help people, invoke the name of Jesus, invoke the name of Paul to deliver people. Unfortunately for them, the result was not what they were hoping for, because instead of finding a new method from which they could deliver other people, they instead they find themselves at the end of a physical and a verbal rebuke from the hand of these demons. Verse 15 tells us, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's the verbal rebuke that these men receive. And then verse 16 is the physical one. It says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, he leaped on them, he mastered all of them, and he overpowered them. One man overpowered seven men with the supernatural strength of the demonic or the satanic, causing those men to run for their lives. The seven sons of Sceva, or Siva may have been good people, trying to do good things, but they had no real relationship with Jesus. And because they had no real relationship with Jesus, they had no uh, spiritual power against this evil spirit. So they uttered the words, but they didn't have the power that came 
from being in relationship with Jesus. And so they could be attacked by these demons, and they were physically uh, as well as verbally. What, what I think we're seeing here, remember those old movies, kind of those vampire-type movies, and the, the Catholic priest would come out and saying something and probably Italian or something and just sort of freaked out and, and holding the crucifix out there in front, and then like the vampire, the werewolf or whatever had to like, ah, and would run away. That's what I think these guys are doing. There's no power in the crucifix. That's a movie um, that you're watching there. And there's no power in just saying these words. Jesus is not a good luck charm. Even if you say it this way, in the name of Jesus, it, that's, it, he's not a good luck charm. He's a person. And those of us that are in relationship with that person have his power and have the ability in situations like that, but not some people that don't know him at all except his name, the sons of Sceva uh, or such, Siva, excuse me, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and notice fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus was lifted up. That's what that means, honored. Not Paul's name, but the Lord's name. It says that it became known to all the residents. I guess it did. That would be a story if it happened in our town that everybody would be talking about. And they were talking about it there. And it says fear fell upon all of them. Again, and they extolled Jesus, not Paul. I think we need to be really careful how we serve other people, how we minister to other people, and the type of ministry that we do, that we're not drawing people to ourselves. You know, and so we do a good deed or whatever, and we want everyone to know that we did a good deed. You're drawing people to yourself. We do a good deed, and we want everyone to know, oh, but it was our church that did. Make sure you let everyone know that it was our church that did that, and you're drawing people to yourself. That's not what we want to be about. We want Jesus to be extolled when everything is said and done. We want him to be the one that is honored, and so we give him the attention. Amen? You're with me on that? And so we see Paul doing that exact thing. Notice what also happens here. It says fear fell um, upon all of them or, or something similar to that. And that fear that fell brought conviction with it. And so again, look at verse 18. It says, and many of those who were now believers came confessing, that is their sin, and divulging those practices. Many of those that were now believers. That's the idea. They were new believers. And as new believers in Jesus Christ, they began to recognize that there were some things in their lives that didn't line up with what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And they began to confess it as such. And they began to put those things aside. Many of these that had just come to the faith began to realize that there was area of sin in their lives and that they had to go. That's the classic definition of repentance. The classic definition or the idea of what repentance is in our scriptures is an understanding that something is different than you previously thought. This was good before. It's not good anymore. I realized that was wrong, that that was sin. And then it's taking that new knowledge and changing the direction you go. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go in a new direction. That's repentance. And that's what these guys are doing here. Verse 19 will point out they, that they begin to destroy anything that was associated with that sin that, so that they wouldn't fall back into those things again. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts 
which Ephesus was known for, and brought their books together. They did, I should say, brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of everyone, and they counted the value of them and found that it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. They have, if you will, an old-fashioned book burning. But notice, they did so not because they were commanded to. There wasn't some select committee that told them they had to do this or that went door to door, house to house, and kind of knocked the lady out of the way and went into the bookshelf and took these things out. They did these things because they had determined to do these things. They burned these books and these other things because they had determined that those resources were harmful for them and others and that they wanted nothing more to do with them. And so they destroyed them. And we're not given the full story, but something like this went down, that the sons, after the Sons of Siva incident, many of these new believers began to realize that some of the things that they were involved in were demonic activities, even as that man had been involved in and clearly had a demon himself. So new believers had newly begun gathering with the church, had newly begun attending Bible studies, had newly begun applying these things uh, that they were learning to their lives, and yet were still involved in some activities and practices that they would later conclude were wrong and had to go from their lives. And maybe they knew those things and were compromising, or maybe they had no idea yet, because Paul hadn't hadn't taught on that topic yet, but now they do know. And because they do know, they realize they need to get rid of it. Let me give you an example. When I was younger, a couple years back, everybody got a newspaper. Anybody remember those days? Newspaper came to every house. I remember delivering 1,500 one summer for my sister-in-law who abandoned her paper route and made us do it. No, we enjoyed it. Um, but everybody got a newspaper. Maybe you got two newspapers at your house. And, in, and for those of you that are younger, it was a big piece of paper, black. And, and you would open it up, and in there, there would, there would be a horoscope. It was usually right around uh, the comics, which is where I always turned as a kid. You turn to the comics, eat your bowl of cereal, read through them. If you got all the way through them, you'd end up on the next page where the horoscope was. And the, hor- the daily horoscope was presented And just about everyone in America had access to the daily horoscope, and many people would read it. And the basic idea of horoscopes, which which is connected to a person's astrological sign, what are you, you're Libra, you're Leo, you're this or that, I don't even know what they all are, uh, but I know those two. And the basic idea is that it was connected to a person's astrological sign that the planets and the stars exert an influence on a person's life. And how those planets and stars are lined up will determine what your day is going to be like, your year is going to be like, your week's going to be like, all that. And there were those with special knowledge. They were astrologers. And you could go to them, and they would be able to predict the events in your life based on the alignment of the stars. Or they would be able to tell you, today's not a good day to start a new project because the stars aren't lined up. You need to wait a week or whatever it might be. And come back and give me another 20 bucks, and I'll tell you if it's a good day today and all these kinds of things. I hope we all understand that is not a biblical concept, correct? We all agree with that? That's not what the scripture teaches. You shouldn't be playing around with those things, looking at them. They're not fun, all that kind of stuff. If, however, you used to check your horoscopes, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me when I was a kid. If you used to check your horoscopes every single morning before heading out for the day, And you did that for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of your particular life, and you organized your day based on what your horoscope 
told you, well, it's very likely that that might become a habit that was pretty hard for you to break. I'll give you another dumb example. You remember that knock on wood? So if you say something and you don't knock on wood, it won't come true. Some of us on our heads, uh, and it won't come true. Well, I was in the grips of that silly practice when I was about 17. And I was 16, I remember, because I wanted to get my driver's license. And I was like, oh, I hope I don't fail this test. Oh, knock on wood, because I said it, and it'll come true if I don't knock on wood or something like that. Well, now I was becoming a Christian. And I was realizing, no, that's bondage to something that just isn't true. Is it the hugest deal in the world? No. But it's just not true. And I don't want to live my life that particular way. And it was like a smoking habit that I had to break. You know, like, oh, no, my life's going to be ruined now. All these kinds of things. All right, let's go back to the horoscope thing. So you've built your entire life on looking at a horoscope, routing out or plotting out your day based on what you read in that horoscope. And now you have to break that particular habit. Or maybe you don't know it's wrong necessarily. But you've been going to church, you've been hearing these Bible studies, and you're thinking, that needs to go from my life. And maybe that was a year after you became a Christian that you finally realized that. Are you with me on my example? It took a long time to get there. I'm sorry. I think that's what's going on with these folks. These are those that are now believers, as it says, and, I, and they've been going to church, so probably maybe they're already saved, and they're realizing, you know what? We got those books back at home that we've been reading. We have those practices. I've been looking in my newspaper, reading those horoscopes. I've been knocking on wood every day of my life. And, this, and they realize those things have to go. And so, as it says in verse 18, they came confessing, acknowledging, this is sin, I don't want to do it anymore, and I'm not going to do it anymore, and divulging their practices. And then they go a step further than that, and they put those things out of their lives. It says a number of those who had practiced their arts, they brought their books together, they burned them in the sight of all, and it goes on and it gives us the price. They didn't just cut back on these practices. You know, this is wrong, so instead of every day reading my horoscope, I'll just read it once a week. They didn't just cut back on these particular practices, they put them out of their lives. They didn't just box up their books and put them up in an attic in case someday they might want to go back to them. I don't want to be too extreme. But they destroyed them so that they could never go back to them. What they did was they made a clean break from those items that were leading them into sin. As Luke says in verse 19, they brought their books together and they burned them. They brought their books together and they burned them. Notice, they didn't bring other people's books together and burn them. They brought their own books and they burned them. So this isn't a classic book-burning situation where you break the doors down of people's houses and you determine what they're going to get rid of and what they're not going to get rid of. They brought their own materials that had to go. You'll also notice that we're given no indi indication in this little passage here that this is the message Paul was preaching. This wasn't, Paul wasn't commanding them or requiring these new believers to do it. The Holy Spirit was working in the lives of these believers and prompting them to do it. It came completely from the conviction that God brought upon them. God was doing an internal change in them that was going to manifest itself in outward actions. And that's the classic definition of what? Repentance. And so God brought repentance to these believers. And notice it was a costly repentance. Luke says at the end of verse 19, 
they valued up, uh, they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I saw um, various estimates of what that might cost, and some of your versions may use the word drachma. It's in the range of a million to five million dollars was the value of these things that they brought. Imagine if they just boxed them up, sold that to some store that sells these kinds of material. They could have used all that money to do such good, couldn't they? No, she says. Well, couldn't they have used that money to do good with? They could have, but they realized, look, if this stuff is bad for us, it's bad for everybody. It's like, you know, they had like a whole bunch of drugs or something and they were dealers and God put it on their hearts that you shouldn't be doing this anymore. They don't just go sell it to some other dealer because I'm out of that life. They destroy it. I can't, we have nothing to do with this anymore. They destroy all of these books. They weren't going to pass this poison unto other people, even though millions of dollars potentially. But the point for them was they wanted to be right with God no matter what the cost was. The Apostle Paul, he would write in another version or in another um, book of the Bible, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he would say this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, in Paul's case, he's primarily talking about his reputation and his position that he had in life. But I think it can apply to this situation. No matter what the cost is, I'm going to put this thing out of my life that I might walk unhindered with Jesus. Repentance almost always requires a costly decision. Now, in our lives, it may not be a decision that values in the millions and millions of dollars, but it's still costly nonetheless. Repentance is going to be costly. And as these disciples, as they began to discover God's will for their lives, they concluded that it was impossible for them to confess Jesus as Lord while still clinging to these occult practices. That may not be the issue for most of us in this room. And so then, you know, as we're trying to apply these things to our lives, the question to ask ourselves is not this. Is there anything in my life that is of the occult that I have to get rid of? It's not a bad question to ask, but I don't think that's the primary question we should be asking of ourselves as we're seeking to apply these things. Rather, I think the question we should be asking is this. Is there anything in my life that is hindering my spiritual growth? Because that'll get to the matter, the heart matter, regardless of what the matter might be. And so if we just simply today hear this and say, man, I got to make sure there's nothing in my life that is connected with the occult. And you go home and you get your magic eight ball and you throw that thing away. I can't, can't have that in my house or whatever. You, most of us probably don't have stuff from the occult in our lives. And so we don't want to just stop there and ask that question to us because the conclusion would be, well, I'm good in that area. The better question, again, is there something in my life that must go in order that Christ might be magnified in a greater way? The writer of the book of Hebrews, I think, touches on this idea. He words it this way. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, such an example of those that have come before us, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily trips us up so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Putting aside those things that will weigh us down, putting aside those things that will trip us up, putting aside those things that will keep us from running our race and doing it well. 
And so for these guys, it was these occultic practices. For you, it could be the music that you listen to. It could be the things that you watch on TV or on your computer or whatever it might be. It could be maybe the items that you read, the books that you allow yourself into engage in, the things that you're scrolling through. It could be the way that you spend your free time. And so I think what God would have us regularly be doing in our lives is to take every area of our lives, bring it before him, let him shine his light on it, and ask ourselves that question, is there an area that he is putting his finger on, that he is shining his light on, that is hindering me from running the race that he has for me? And as he reveals things to you, you know, Greg, you spend a lot of time watching sports, and you're wasting a lot of time watching sports. All right, Lord, and we begin to put those things away. You know, you spend, look on your phone someday and go to that little place. I don't know how to get there. I stumble across it. It'll tell you how long you've been on Facebook. You want some conviction. And it'll, 17 hours? How did I spend 17 hours? Or whatever. Well, Apple don't lie. All right? It's telling you. All right? And let God speak to your heart about that. Is this the best way that you should be spending your time or is it hindering you? Big one for me, News. And I walk away a lot of times and this world and those people and that's their problem or whatever. That's not really good for my heart. I need to know that information, but it makes me a little grumpy. Right, Robin? All right. I don't want to be grumpy or whatever. And the Lord desires other things for me. So anything in our lives that is holding us back or indicating a divided allegiance, it needs to be rejected. Whatever the cost might be, costly repentance. And so as we look at this, we'll end right now. These Ephesian believers, let him be an example to each of us. Finally, verse 20, the word of the Lord, it continued to increase. It continued to prevail mightily. Mightily. The people were being taught the word. They were seeing God's work in a powerful way in the lives of people. They were responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and God's word was continuing to advance and prevail mightily. That's how it works. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that. In some ways, it's, it's pretty simple. We sit under your word. We obey what it says. No matter the cost, we walk in your ways. And Lord, you honor that. You bless that. Our lives begin to change. And others begin to observe and are drawn to it as well. Quite simple. Not the easiest thing to do, but quite simple to do. And so, Lord, I pray, even if it's just one little area in each one of our lives that needs to go, Lord, would you give us the courage to respond in obedience to walk in that truth? And would you be magnified through our couple hundred lives throughout our community as we do? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.